All right, and good evening, everyone. Well, you welcome to the Invention of the Seventh Day Week with Dr. Zuckerman Sivan. This is our third session. We are back from our brief perm break. Um, if you were, if you were interested in here, if you're interested today and you want to catch up to the first two classes, they are up in Grisha's audio library. Um, and we're just going just a quick bit of housekeeping. If you are watching and you want to speak, please only unmute yourself when you're going to speak. Otherwise, we get cross chatter. We get feedback. Not so fun. But otherwise, you are encouraged to ask questions. Um, the chats on both Zoom and Facebook are monitored. So do, do feel free to ask. And it will be heard. Um, and if you're turning your video on or you're in Zoom, the raise your hand function is strongly encouraged. And with that, I turn it over to uh, Dr. Zuckerman Steven. Good evening. Thank you, Kayla. Okay. Uh, we are at 8.01. I'm wondering whether we should, uh, there's a few people who are attending regularly. I don't see them. So I wonder if we should just get going. I can tap dance. It's one of the things that we, it's odd about Zoom is that, uh, you know, people, you can just get on. So you don't know whether someone's on their way or whatever it is. Um, but I will be happy to, to get going. Um, well, your call. Uh, it is entirely yeah. your call, um, but it is a, but, and I, we also have source sheet, there are also source sheets that will be uh, shared mm -hmm. in chat, both Zoom and Facebook. So oh, I forgot to mention one thing, which is, um, it's going to be helpful for people in addition to, we're going to keep on going back and forth to um, Ted Zion, so Exodus 16. Um, there are parts of that are considered on the source sheet, but uh, the entire um, parak is in the previous source sheet um, or in your Tanakh if you have one. So if uh, people want to uh, um, have that available also, that would be useful. Um, uh, can you repeat which um, parak people should keep at hand? Uh, Ted Zion, uh, 16. All right. All right. Okay. So there you go. Thank you, Kayla. Okay. Great. All right. So let me share, share my screen. Let me give you an update of where we are in this course and what I want to do, what we can do today. Um, mostly we'll take a look at the sources. So um, what we've done so far, uh, you can see my screen, which says where we are so far. Good. Okay. So, um, Basically, among things we did, and this is the focus of last lecture, was uh, to really spotlight that chapter I just mentioned. So Shmot Zion or Exodus 16, that is the story of uh, the Man and Shabbat. And what I'm, I've been suggesting is that this chapter, um, which we're kind of generally all familiar with, um, but maybe don't emphasize its importance and maybe even its sequencing as much as we might, um, that what it does is number one, it describes the Shabbat slash week. So that's one thing that I've been emphasizing is that um, the Torah um, is not just presenting us with the, with the Shabbat, it's, it's, it's presenting us with the institution of the seven day week. And when the Torah uses the word Shabbat, except when it's saying the words Yom HaShabbat, um, but even then, when it's saying Zahar Yom HaShabbat HaKadoshah, as Chazal teach us, you can't actually know what the, uh, you know, you can't actually just focus on the day of Shabbat without thinking about the entire cycle. Uh, and that um, is certainly true. It's especially true in a world that did not know of the seven-day week. So the only way to actually follow that cycle and observe it and therefore institutionalize it is to actually remember that day. So even when it's just talking about the day of Shabbat, it's talking about the whole week. Certainly when it's using the word Shabbat, it means both the um, Shabbat and the week. So it's a, um, it describes the Shabbat as a bewildering, disruptive invention. Uh, and that's in line with what we know about the seven day week scientifically, number one. Number two, um, this is really the focus of uh, the heart of last uh, uh, class, last session, um, was that the Shabbat, I think it's useful to think about that first Shabbat that's described in, uh, Shemot Tetzayin as a paradigm for all subsequent Shabbatot uh, to be remembered and kept, right? So that, you know, hold on to it. That's the first Zachar. And then Shemot to observe it in the way that 
um, that, that, that Israel is being instructed. And then, and this was the real heart of last lecture, was that it both it fuses together and fulfills uh, the special or covenantal experience uh, of, um, of both cre creation um, in its two senses, the two creation stories, both um, uh, human beings as sort of little creators uh, and a sort of in the second creation story as sort of junior partners or, or, or child um, of, of, of God in relationship with God. Uh, so both creation and Exodus. And um, as part of it also, this is emphasized as well in the second version of the, of the fourth commandment in, 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 in Dvarim, in Deuteronomy, um, that it is also infused with an anti-hierarchical ideal. That's also part of that return to Eden uh, aspect of it, which is where you're naked before God. All right, so what's left in our three sessions left? Uh, today, what we're gonna do is we're going to kind of like double down on uh, the Shabbat as part of the Exodus story. Okay, and so this will be a really good um, kind of prep for the upcoming holiday, uh, among other things. That'll be true in the next couple of weeks as well, but certainly today. And so the important thing here is that like, and this is a sense in which you could say, you certainly could do today's lecture um, outside the context of my project about the invention of the seven day week. Um, that's probably, it's in some sense, the least important here. Um, but, you know, it's important, I think, that the Torah is not just telling us about, oh, you know, we invented the week and here's how it happened. We'll talk a lot more about that in the next uh, couple of sessions. But it's also doing it in the context of a story uh, and is developing these ideas through lessons that it wants to teach us about that story. And therefore, the Shabbat um, and the, the week are instruments in teaching us something. Okay. Um, so what is that? Um, and by the way, just where we're headed next week, what we'll do is the real, the, the prompt for really getting um, uh, for, for next week's lecture will be uh, the shocking fact that in the Torah's account, the violation of Shabbat is a capital offense. That's to be the focus. Uh, and that's going to be something, something we don't usually frame in those terms and think about. It's sort of like an abstraction in Chazal. No one actually gets killed for it, but it turns out to actually be true. There's a story about it in um, in uh, Bamidbar. And that's going to be, it's going to be really important to reckon with that story. It's going to unlock a lot for us. Uh, and then we're going to get to back to the question which we animated the, the entire um, series, um, which is um, what really is the Torah's answer to those scientific puzzles about the Shabbat? Why, you know, why was the seven day week only launched once? Uh, how is it possible for a disruption to routine to create new routines? And how, by the way, did the week win? And take over the world, um, and that's is that all in there next week in that last class, maybe. <laughs> um, but the Torah will have an answer that will be helpful with that. Is the is the idea, and it'll build on the, these uh, next lecture on this one. All right, today, I want to start off with something that I think I I hinted at last week, but I didn't get into it. I think is a really good way to start in thinking about sort of the Shabbat and Amman as the climax of in one. Sense, maybe an important sense of the of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim of the Exodus, and so um, the idea. And so let's look at. I'm going to switch over to um, uh, you know source source one. Uh, let's we switch over to source sheet actually. I think. All right. So so this is now this is in some sense the climactic moment really of this whole story. Uh, the last, this is again back to Shemot Tetzayin. Uh, and what we see here, this is this um, very important uh, pasuk, uh, the Baishbatu Ambayom and the people's Sabbath on the seventh day. That's the end of the story. Vis a vis the Shabbat is a little bit of kind of addendum that has to do with the man in particular. Uh, and what I want to focus on here is, uh, is the, these set of verses that lead up to it. And in particular, uh, what you see over here, which is um, these words, uh, well, I'm going to focus on first these words here in, in blue. So this is, uh, if you recall that Israel, basically, we failed to observe our first Shabbat, that first Shabbat, um, and God gets frustrated, and he actually takes it out of Moshe, how long will, you know, how long will it take for you to be, to refuse, to obey my commandments, my teachings, Torah and they just pay attention, right? Look, here's the Shabbat is here. You, you know, I, and, and I, God, God has given you the Shabbat. 
talks about himself in the third person. And that's why he, that is me, is giving you um, on the sixth day, uh, you know, uh, twice as much bread, the Lecha Mishnah, all right? Uh, bread for the last two days. And then it says, okay, so first there's this notion of God giving you something, okay? And so if you look at source two, what you'll see is um, Chazal's famous elaboration on this. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. Uh, this notion that, um, and it shows up a couple of times in Chazal, and sometimes they're indirectly referring to this, this Pasuk. I have a piece in Lairhouse about this, uh, just, a, uh, just a couple, uh, just a month or two ago. Um, but um, what you see here is an imagery of God sort of as king, and Moshe um, coming to God. It's, he's got a treasure house like a king does elsewhere in Chazal. That treasure house is, um, you know, is a king's treasure house. And the king has this treasure and he bestows it on, uh, um, on, 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 the, on the Jewish people, on, on Israel. Uh, Moshe is the messenger. And what you get is sort of this idea, and it's mysterious in the sense that they have to be told about it, uh, that they're, they're getting this message. This is, um, there's uh, Gemara and Shabbat and, and Beitzah that, that both develop that idea. Um, and it's a play on those words in that Pasuk. So, and by the way, that's, that's um, basically unique to the Shabbat over all mitzvot, that um, other than settlement of the land of Israel. Israel, the land of Israel is repeatedly re described um, by the Torah as a gift in this sense, um, but Shabbat, other, and all the commandments is described as a gift. So it's another really important aspect of the Shabbat um, as a you know, special gift that God is bestowing on, on Israel. And let me show you something else, which I think is really important to see. Um, this is a kind of a longstanding mystery. Um, is what's in purple here. Um, so it's very strange, right? So it says, um, you know, in the English here, uh, observe that it is, the, uh, you know, it's me, God, who's giving you the, the Shabbat, and I'm putting in here the week, two, or maybe for you. And that's why he's giving you two days worth of And then you all, so Shavu Ish Tachtav, you, every one of you sort of, should sit under it. And then it's in elaboration, um, you should not leave your place on the seventh day. And there are sort of halachot that are attributed, there are commandments that are about the Shabbat that are attributed to these. So came in particular, the notion of tchum, tchum Shabbat that you can't, uh, there's only a certain amount of distance you can kind of travel on Shabbat outside of where you are. Um, and and Eruv sometimes is attributed to here also. But this is, if you didn't have these words, you would, you would still have that. Nothing was really attributed to these words. And they're very strange words. Sit every man under it, okay? And let me show you what I think this is a refer reference to. Um, and you'll see this various attempts to try to understand it. Um, but if you think about for a second, where else in Tanakh, we have the expression, uh, a man should sit under it. A man will sit under it. La shevet ishtachat. I, I, um, I, I would submit, if you think about it, you will immediately think of very famous verses that have that, um, you know, that, 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 phrase, that phrasing to it. Each man should sit under it or will sit under it, right? Judith, you're nodding, right? What are you thinking of? Tree. Yeah, under a tree. What kind of tree? Fig tree. Fig tree, right. Vine and fig tree, yeah. So if you look at source three, that's what you see. And source three and source four, right? So the most, this is, source three is the most famous of this. Actually, if you watch the um, uh, inauguration, uh, like there was a, a poet who kind of gave an, a, a, a speech at Joe Biden's inauguration. And she referred to this. This is one of the most, uh, you know, evocative, inspirational uh, images of, um, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, of Obama, of, of, uh, of utopia, essentially coming from the prophet Micha. Um, you know, it's got all kinds of stuff in it that we have in our, in our, in our liturgy. Um, you know, you've got, you've got, what else is in there? You know, um, you know, so you've got image, images of, uh, you know, Israel fulfilling its mission. Um, of bringing God and, and justice to the world, tzedek and mishpat to the whole world, uh, and then everyone's dwelling security. And then there's this image here, v'yashvu ish tachat dafno right? Um, if you, and it's not just theoretical, 
right? So if you look at source four, you see almost exactly the same words. This is from the fifth chapter of the first book, you know, of Malachim, of, of Kings. Um, in this case, it's actual, right? So um, you've got, and those chapters describe the very, very, very height of um, the, uh, the, the Davidic monarchy under, under Shlomo Melech after he's built the, 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 the temple. And again, there's unity, uh, Judea and, um, and, and Israel, Yudan and Israel are uh, you know, unified, they're lived well in security, they're prosperous. Um, now, look, by the way, look over here, this is really interesting. There's also, um, uh, what, what you see over here is bread and meat, uh, right? So they're, they're, they've got bounty, Sorry, bread and meat sound familiar, right? From our story in uh, Shemot Ted Zion, Exodus 16. Uh, man, man is, you know, we didn't emphasize with this, the Slav and the Man. And then you have here, so UW Israel, Okay. And in fact, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other references. These are the most direct references. In general, this expression is the biblical paradigm for living the good life, security, unity, peace prosperity, all bestowed by a benevolent king. And so that's the message, actually, the Torah is giving us about the Shabbat, that the Shabbat is um, the way for, and the king in the question in this case is God. God is providing, in this case, it's Shabbat is an abstraction. There's no actual tree, right? Shabbat, as we, as we talked about in the, in the, you know, it's sort of metaphysical in a sense, it's not tangible, but it is, if you just pay attention, it's saying you will live the good life. From the Shabbat, and I think that speaks to us still to this day. I mean, you could say so. Back to my, uh, switch over to the. So what I want to say is like that is just a really really powerful um, idea um, and sort of fulfillment of um, what the Shabbat is all about. It um, we'll see actually even next session about how that actually relates even more to the to the, to the um, Exodus story, that particular as a sort of a, a um, uh, sort of an answer to Paro. There's a bunch of things going on here that's like, you know, the divine king is a benevolent king, whereas the human king is a tyrant. Um, but basically, we've got a gift bestowed by a benevolent king. It's this biblical paradigm for the good life. Um, I would say, you know, it's, it's the basis, I think, the, the scriptural basis for Chazal's idea of Shabbat as the taste of the world to come. Uh, so there's a connection to these kind of utopic, um, you know, eschatological, um, you know, uh, visions of Micha and others. And I would actually also think, you know, if you think about Heschel's notion of a palace in time, right, this, this, this sense of Shabbat that is in these verses is really, really important. Because otherwise we might think, well, you know, this notion that we have that every Shabbat is like connected somehow, and sort of transcends time, how, how could that have been true for the first Shabbat? Because they, they didn't have all the things that we associate with the first Shabbat. We know evidence that they did. You know, there was no kugel, there was no parsha, there was no, all the things we associate with Shabbat. But this description of Shabbat as the good life in this way, that resonates, right? So it connects us with that first Shabbat and creates that sense of transcendence that with all the Shabbatot are sort of connected to that experience. Okay. But here's the thing. If we go back to the beginning of, um, so the next source, we go back to the beginning of the chapter. Okay, so now I'm going, as I said, the, the, the objective here is to see how this fits in the larger story of the Exodus. If you go back to that, um, to the beginning of the chapter, we have a big problem. Okay, and the problem is that, you know, here we have this image of, uh, you know, Shabbat is the good life, as the benevolent king. And if we look at that source, uh, what number of source is that? One second here. Um, okay. Source five. This is, this is going to be maybe the most important source for us to look at um, for today. So this is the very beginning of this chapter. And um, Right away, if we look at it, we should have a lot of questions, like a lot of questions. Um, you know, the most important thing here is the contrast. So they come out to the 
wilderness of Sin, uh, you know, between their last station and Sinai, uh, the 15th day, telling us, you know, basically place and date in that first Pasuk, the first verse. And then they're complaining, okay? And they complain, their relationship here is with Moshe and Ara, right? And they speak about God only in the third person. And they speak about God very negatively, right? This is not people who are looking to God as the benevolent king, right? Um, they think of God, you know, how would you summarize the way they're describing God here? How do they think of God? More like a master? A master? Yeah, a good master, like a benevolent master? I don't know if I'd put it that way. Yeah, like, you know, um, you can think about tyrants who are in the world today who you might think are more apt, <laughs> right? Basically, they're scared of him. They're scared that God is going to somehow, uh, you know, and there's some plan to actually bring him out into the wilderness and starve him to death, right? So this is really, really awful image of God. And they're not even, they're, 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 they're complaining to Moshe about it, Moshe and Aaron. Um, and it's very strange, right? Look at this. Let me show you a couple. So there's a whole bunch of questions that we should have on this. Let me walk you through them. But this notion here of Yad Hashem, so the hand of God, okay? So there, um, who would, you know, would it been, you know, who's going to give us, you know, we wish, we wish we could have had our deaths at the hand of God in the land of Egypt. Now, what are they referring to? Well, here's the, the time where this shows up in Egypt. That's in the fifth plague. So it seems like they're referring back to the fifth plague. Here it is. Yad Hashem, This is where uh, God Actually, so it's interesting, ironically, this is the first time that um, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. So the previous plague, in plague four, there's a distinction between Goshen and the rest of Egypt. So it's based on place. In this case, apparently, you know, the livestock of Israel is treated differently than the livestock of Egypt, presumably when they're even side by side, right? It's not simply based on location. And they're remembering this, it seems, and remembering it in a very negative way. That is strange. Not only that, but let's look even more nearer term when they've talked about the hands of God and where hands have come up, okay? That is here, source seven. This is very, very familiar to us. We say this, you know, every day. Um, this is the text and we say, we excerpt from it. Uh, you know, every single prayer service. Um, wow, do we make the Song of the Sea very important in our liturgy. And here it is. And if you look through it, you, I'm going to show you a couple of things. So one is, if you look through and see that I'm using the, this color, whatever that's called. Anyone want to name that color? I don't know what that is. The same color I'm using as I used the previous for anytime there's a hand mentioned. So here I was doing it, right? And here I'm doing it again. If you look through source seven, what you'll see is seven times, right? So it's a keyword and a significant keyword. Torah does that, you should pay attention. It varies it a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't use the word yad or hand, it uses the word yamin, as in right hand, so powerful hand, right? And one other time it uses the word zroa, arm, right? As we know from zroa Nisuya, like it's basically sort of a forceful hand doing something, intervening in the world. And so this is actually like, the, the, right? This is where they're mentioning the, the hand of God. And this is a hand that actually is like on their side. It's continually on, it was on, its, on their side back in the fifth plague. And it's certainly on their side here, right? They saw the great hand that, that God did in Egypt. And that made them believe in God. Right? And they believed in God, they believed in Moshe. This is just a couple of weeks before, right? And that they were at the height of, of Emunah, faith. And it was, it was emphasizing the, the, the hand of God. Very strange, right? Um, 
seven times. I want to show you, let me actually make sure that I want to just to flesh it out. Let me just make sure I've got all the questions that so you have in mind. Almost all of them I'm going to address today of what I think questions are we should have about this strange tantrum. Okay. So here are the questions. All right. One question we should have is, wait, you can you see this? Uh, no, you don't see it. <laughs> One second here, let me show you these questions. The main question I've given you, but I wanna make sure, just to make sure you have all of them, because there's really a lot of questions we could have and should have about this panic that they have, okay? The first one is, they have no cause to complain. The text does not say that they are out of food does not say that at all. And in prior complaints, they've already begun complaining. The first time they complain is after uh, Moshe first goes, Moshe and Aaron first go to Paro and say, let my people go. And Paro responds by making their work harder. Then they complain. That's a good reason to complain. Then they've got the Egyptian army bearing, you know, the chariots bearing down on them. Another really good reason to complain. Then they're out of water. Also a good reason to complain. Here, they have no reason to complain. They are not out of food, or at least the text doesn't tell us they are. The text could have told us this. It goes out of its way to tell us this elsewhere. So that's strange. The second thing is, if you look across all those stories, it looks like there's actually progression towards realizing that God is the address for their complaints. The last time that they complained, Moshe publicly prayed by its Akel Hashem, he prayed. Why are they going to, to, to Moshe and Aaron and not to God? That's also strange. There's something else here that's going on if you look in the, in the verses, which is there's a really three different ways they go, the, the verses go out of the way to tell you everybody complained. Everybody's in this. It uses the word kahal, congregation, or, or, um, you know, or eda. It uses the word kol, everybody. Everybody's complaining. Why everybody? Strange. Also goes as a way to tell us that it's in the wilderness this is happening, even though it just told us that it's in the wilderness of sin. Doesn't need to tell us this, that's extraneous. It also tells us the date, 15th of the second month. Torah does not tell you a lot of dates. It does not even tell you when Sinai happened, for goodness sakes. Everybody knows, right? We all know that. Why is it telling us about this date? Very strange. And now, this is really, really important. The formulation of their complaint is famously enigmatic. And there's four different aspects of it that I want to emphasize. Number one, this is famous, though it's a little bit misleading because we tend to fuse this complaint with the one that's in Parsha Baalotcha in Bamidbar. That's in chapter 11. Let's put that aside. That's a different set of complaints. And we make a mistake if we fuse them together to think of the same set of complaints. That's the one that talks about how the seeded, you know, the, the cucumbers and the watermelon that they remember or something like that um, in Egypt and fish. Put that aside. Here, they seem to be having memories of meat and bread. We've already talked about meat and bread, right? Bishiftenu al-sir habasar, they say. Also strange phrasing, right? As we sat by the flesh pots, that's usually um, translated. Uh, this is a case where I think the King James translation somehow has had a big impact because it's come into the English language in a way that could be problematic. But the flesh pots of Egypt, like somehow we think that means positive things. I think it's merged together with the, the memories in Baalotcha. But let's, let's not assume that's what it means. Uh, and then it's lechem lasova, as we ate to our satisfaction. So those, and what's weird is that a, those are two, dip, two rosy memories, it seems like at first in the first blush, number one. Number two, they're two distinct memories because it doesn't say, ooh, there's no vav between them, not linking them. It's actually um, just, uh, it's two different, like it's like there's a beat there. In two different occasions. I mentioned already number C, what is the big deal? The God's hand is very strange, um, given that we're supposed to, like God's hand is supposed to be on our side. And the last one is, this is, I think, really important. There's an internal contradiction here. 
They're saying, if it weren't for you, Moshe and Aaron, who like snookered us and brought us out into the wilderness, two things would have been true. On the one hand, we would apparently would have enjoyed the good life. But on the other hand, we would have been killed by God. Guess what? Those two things do not go together. Right? Very strange to say, hey, you know, we're complaining about those two completely contradictory things. So we need to understand what's going on that led them to make these complaints. That's what I want to develop for you. Okay, and I think it's going to be very instructive to understand what the Torah's message is about the Shabbat and the week. Okay, so let's go back to our sources for a second. And, um, oh, I wanted to mention one other thing before we get there. This will be part of our approach. I, if you notice in source seven, I'm mentioning that they're channeling Joseph, channeling Yosef. And that's not at all immediately obvious. But I want to suggest that there is an, a Yosef element to the um, Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea. Does anyone, you know, what, what would you connect to, to Yosef here in the Song of the Sea? What is Joseph like about this song? Well, what is Joseph most famous for? What is his greatness? Joseph is strength. Vision. All right, good. Joseph is strength. Okay. Vision. Yeah. Is there a vision in this? There certainly is, right, Ozzy? Uh, oh, I see uh, Susan. Uh, what, uh, what, what, what kind of vision are you talking about? Well, I think he's got, he, ha, he has visions, right? He's a prophet. Right, right. right. We know that from, also from Mamidbar, right? We somehow have been, and he's a dreamer. He's a dreamer and he's interpreter of dreams. And this is a prophecy, right? Think about it. When else do we have Israel, uh, really, and even Moshe, prophesizing and saying what the future is going to hold? This is it, right here. It's, it's in the Song of the Sea. They're telling the future. Um, now, not only are they telling the future, but they're also talking about how things are going to be good for them. Right? God is on their side in this, just like Yosef seems to think God is on his side. Right? You might even say, go so far as to say, like Yosef basically thinks that, uh, I'll try to say this in the least uh, problematic way, but you know, that he can almost like he has such good insight into what God is going to do, that it's almost like he controls God. Right? That's the danger anyway, of thinking you know what God is going to do. And he's acting in God's stead. Now, that's not exactly what's going on here. But if you look through the themes of what's going on is, God is a Ishmael Chama, a man of war. He's the king, right? By the way, who's famous for controlling, thinking he can control kings? Yosef. Right, Paro. Um, we'll get into that. <laughs> and I want to suggest it's not far fetched. Oh, and so and, and he's describing. Look at what here's the, the prophecy is all about. Here's the English side, right? There's going to be all these different uh, battles they're going to they're going to face. Plishtim, Moab, Edom. We're going to face all those different enemies, and God is going to lead us to battle, just like He just did. They're projecting the future, and they're they're predicting all of that. Um, and there's an element of time here, right? They're going to they're basically describing what's going to happen in the time. Now, it sounds, it probably sounds like a big stretch to think they have Yosef on their minds, right? Or they're channeling Yosef. But we should remember this, why they might have Yosef on their minds, right? The Torah goes out of its way to tell us just a few verses before that when they left Egypt, they took Joseph's bones. They're carrying him through the, see right and that's a big deal like he's their sort of their patriarch they're carrying and you would think they would have you know inspirational memories of joseph when he you know what he did for them in saving the jewish people uh, saving saving israel and bringing the whole everyone together and all that and so a joseph kind of uh maybe inspiration okay now let me start to build um, that a little bit as a teaser. Let me start to build a, um, an answer. Here's what happens next. I'm skipping over a little piece. Maybe I'll get to it at the end, which is um, 
Miriam Anavia, uh, you know, Moshe and Aaron's sister, who leads the women out in um, in song in response to the Shira. I think that's actually going to be important, but we'll come back to that. But here's what happens after that. Okay, this is very important. They go, so Moshe takes them three days out into the Midbar shore. They find no water. Amazingly, they don't complain at that point. So they're still filled up with uh, faith, apparently. Then they get finally found some water, but it's actually too bitter to drink. And then miraculously, the water is turned sweet. Okay, that's great. God helps out in that case. And then there's this very, very, very enigmatic verse, right? God then seemingly, it's actually a little bit unclear who's doing it. We'll go with that. Made for them a fixed rule, a chok. Okay, some kind of statue that's sometimes translated as, but as we'll see, I think it's in this case probably more likely to think it's it's a some kind of fixed allocation. Um, and there was a Rebel Khan and Summit, I think. Um, no, no, I think it's uh, Rebel Midan has suggested that it means sort of like a fixed allocation of water. They're allocating the water, something like that. That's one idea. But some kind of ordinance, right? Some kind of law is being handed down. And so Hok Umishpat also. And it seems like there's some kind of test that's being, but very enigmatic, okay? And then we have this. If you listen to God, the God's voice, God your voice, and you do everything that is yashar beina, that's a you know, biblical theme, everything that's you know, on the straight and narrow, and you listen to all his commandments, you follow all of his statutes again, ordinances, what's gonna happen? All of the, you know, disease, pestilence, I don't know how they're translating that, that I um, put on Egypt, I will not see my new, I am God, your healer. So here's a key question. If you're Israel and you hear this, are you happy to hear this or not? On the one hand, yes, God is your healer. On the other hand, what do you think of these terms? In a word, what would you say? It is it uh, it is an, uh, an indirect threat. I mean, it's yeah, it sounds threatening, direct or indirect. I'm not sure. Right. That sounds scary, right? Like super scary. By the way, so okay, so it's basically this very tough. What do we call this? Midat adin, right? It sounds like there's just like this very tough regime of, uh, you know, uh, what do we call it? law and order nowadays, right? Very tough law and order. That's what it looks like. Um, and by the way, uh, what are these laws that he's talking about? They haven't been given yet, right? They have no laws, although they had a few they got in Egypt. You know, like Pesach, is he talking about, or the calendar? So it's got to be a lot more than that. Like, you got to do what's right in God's eyes, but we don't even know what that is. So now you've got, we just said, this is the, you know, Ishmael Chama, right? The man of war who is going to be destroyed, can destroy the greatest armies in the world, right? The Egyptian army, and then the, uh, after he destroys Egypt, you know, Moab and Edom pushed him, it's going to be, you know, child's play. And now he's, uh, now we're up against him. And we've got to follow all these laws that we he's never even told us about. And he's just shown us, he's willing to like, made us go three days without water, play around with us with the, you know, this sounds terrifying, right? If you look to source, um, sources 10 and, and, and 10 A and B, you can see that um, this is basically Moshe in Devarim and Deuteronomy elaborating on these ideas. They show up again, right? So this is the beginning of Parsha Akev, um, same exact language basically, and the same exact consequence. You gotta listen to God, otherwise you're gonna get Egyptian um, sickness, plagues, okay? Same thing you see over here. This is um, later on. This that was Perak, yeah, uh, Zion, the seventh, seventh chapter is twenty-eight. Same thing. You gotta listen to God, otherwise, zap. Right. By the way, here's the word makah. Right. So it's it's referring back to those makod. You're gonna get makod just like the Egyptians got if you don't listen to God. Same exact language. This is an elaboration on this on what what they're saying over here. It sounds really good. Now here's the thing. Moshe softens the blow. Famously, look down over here, next, next uh, or two chapters later, what does he say? He's following the same kind of language. You got to listen to God. You got to listen to those chukim, right? But I'm giving you a sefer Torah, right? I'm giving you this, 
uh, giving you the, the, the law. You have the law. And not only that, but famously, it's not, it's, it's accessible. It's not out of reach. But, so at this point, and they lived with it for 40 years, right? So they know it is accessible, or at least it, it's got to seem more accessible. But now think again of the contrast. And you're back over here. Without that message that it's accessible, you got to be scared out of your mind. Okay. So I think that's key to changing their mindset. God is on their side, and all of a sudden, oh my God, why do we assume God is on our side? Why should we assume it? Now look, look some more. Okay. More reason than to get nervous. This is the next station after Mara. They come to Elim. In Elim, there are 12 springs and 70 date palms. And they're there for, uh, I forget now, a couple of weeks. Okay? If you're there and you're sitting around and you're, and, and you're Israel and you just had this kind of like terrifying experience at Mara after having this kind of, you know, believing in God, you thought you were on his side and you get here. What are you going to be talking about with 12 springs and 70 date palms? I'm sort of giving it away over here. That's the problem with doing these short sheets more, um, right? Like, what is 12 and 70? 12 and 70, 12 and 70. People are talking about it. You're there for a couple of weeks. You got nothing else to do, right? 12 and 70. So that's what's coming on the next sources. You're going to be reviewing your history. How did we get here? Right? Shivim Nefesh, we're going to say in a few weeks in the Haggadah, right? 70 souls went down to Egypt. 12 tribes. There they are. So they're going to be thinking back. So if they weren't thinking about Yosef before, they're going to be talking a lot about Yosef now. And they're going to be converging on their story because they're going to be sure, you know, they finally have time to breathe. They were in Egyptian bondage all those years. So they're going to be converging on a national narrative that involves, and they've got his bones here. They're going to be talking about Yosef and what Yosef did. If they do that, what are they going to remember? Well, if you look at their complaint about that God is going to kill them, and it's going to be, um, it's, if you think about the first part of the complaint, when did they eat bread to their satisfaction? And those language, lechem lasova, here it is. And, they, and God is going to kill them with Ra'av. That contrast in Ra'av and Sova of starvation and satisfaction, right? Or abundance. Yeah, I like that, Ozzy. Thank you for that comment. That's a good comment, right? Well, it first shows up here. This is Yosef's interpretation of Paro's dream. And he describes it as the sevens that you dreamed about. Well, those are sevens of plenty and of of starvation, and I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to fix it through uh, my plan, which we all know about. Okay. So they're thinking of that. Not only they're thinking of that, but that was, you know, a story that Yosef was at. What they all remember, or at least they've got passed down memories of, is the next stage of where this shows up. And this is, I think, a really, really, really important text which we um, do not read carefully enough in general. Um, and what I'm gonna say here is not original to me, but it's not something I think, um, I think it's really, really important in thinking about the story of what happens, of the message, the story of, the, of Israel's experience in Egypt and the message we take away from it. So again, if, so, and if you wanna find somewhere else in Tanakh where people are complaining that they're gonna die of starvation, that's this. And it's not Israel. It's not us. It's Egyptians. And the reason they're complaining they're going to die of starvation is because they're living under Yosef's regime, under his vision, his plan. And he turns the Egyptian people into slaves, to the crown. That's what this plan um, had in effect, if not in intent. One of the most important things, I think, in this chapter is the contrast, the really, really stark contrast between Israel's experience and the Egyptian experience. And you can see it in this transition here. 
um, in so and so Joseph finally gets all the the brothers and the father down to Egypt. Um, Yosef and he um, he provides for them. Lechem lefi hataf. Right, so a little tricky to translate, but something like bread for maybe the mouth of every babe, something like that. If you're doing it very literally, every little, every person, every child had food. And note, look at the next verse: the lechem ein b'chol ha'aretz. And the Torah is going out of its way to draw the contrast. I would suggest it's not saying ein lechem; it's lechem ein. That's a strange construction, but it helps to draw that sharp contrast of all of Israel had bread. The Egyptians, there's no bread in the land because Yosef controls all the bread. And then what happens over the next few years, right, is that they get successively pauperized through this plan. Um, I'm so one thing, just notice the orange is here. So one thing is if you look at the word that's green, lechem is the key word here. It's all about lechem, 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 lechem. Um, you can see there's seven of those. The oranges, this is already started foreshadowing, these are words that show up in, um, or in slight variation in the man story. Where I'm going to head is that the man and the Shabbat are actually, in a way, repudiations of Yosef. Um, or at least fixing their tikkuns for Yosef, put it that way, in the Chazal's terms. The man and Shabbat are a way of teaching us what Yosef may have had, maybe Yosef had no choice. In order to save the family and sort of save himself, he had to be Paro's instrument for um, basically aggrandizing and, and, and the crown and being kind of this classic court Jew. But in so doing, he turned the Egyptian people into slaves, essentially, where, whereas Israel prospered. Look at the contrast also at the end of the, where is it? Here it is again. So here's the last verse of it. It tells you actually, it's, it's they're, they're, the very last thing they say is, you have kept us alive. Joseph's playing God. He is God in this, um, in this story. Uh, in, in, and that's the, the role he's playing. And he, they credit him with keeping them alive. And then he basically gives, here's the chok, by the way, right? He, um, there's a chok, he's treating, so he treats, the um, Israel treats B'nai Israel as if they are like these exalted priests in Egypt. They're special. And you see that. And then you've got, um, this is the contrast. Israel's doing great. They are, you know, um, entrenched and they're, they're prospering, etc. Okay. Um, so all that orange there is all stuff that we're going to see later. We see some of that already. Here's what we just saw, right, in Marah. God gave a chok mishpat, and here's Yosef doing it. Yosef is, is, is acting like God. He does it again and again through, this, through, the, through these um, chapters. Okay? All right. So I'm going to show you, uh, where was it? Okay. And then what we have is, you want to keep on telling the story. Well, so then you see, basically, here's the famously the transition, new king in town. But the Torah starts off with an elaboration on that end of that chapter where what you see is basically there's again the 12 and 70, and you've got um, that verse, which is just saying what happened was they kept on growing. Um, though it seems to have some kind of crit critique in there. It's almost like too much. The Torah is saying that, not the Egyptians, that they were sort of like, uh, you know, sherets. They were, um, Israel somehow was like getting too big, getting too, um, I want to translate that. Um, it's, there's a problem. Swarming. Swarming. Excellent. Thank you. Good. All right. So, and it's not very hard to tell a story about why the Egyptian people would have gone along with this divide and conquer strategy. They enslaved us, we'll enslave you. Good measure for measure. Tikkun. Right? Okay. Now, that we just, so we just covered why it is that um, they might be thinking of Belchlenu Lech and Lasova that we, when we were remembering Egypt, when we ate well and to our satisfaction, why that actually might be not a happy memory or it was once a happy memory, now it is a scary memory because, or feelings of guilt, effectively. They, do we have reasons to feel guilty? Yes, we do. 
if we're Israel in that, that moment. So we're thinking about, and what I'm having in mind is, okay, so God just told us that he's going to judge us based on us being yashar. Were we yashar? You know, do, were we, did we live according to tzedek mishpat? Uh, it's not clear. It's ambiguous at that point. And it looked like we were being punished for it. Now look at the next thing. So it's b'shiftenu al-sira basar. We, where we sat down by um, flesh pots. So I want to suggest that has a very straightforward interpretation. And it's here. They're just using a different word for pot. Turns out saf means pot or basin. This is a description of sitting and eating the, the Korban Pesach, the Paschal, um, the Paschal lamb, during the night of the 10th plague, the very last night they were there. Oh, I forgot one last thing. Um, well, I'll mention it now, it's not important, but I forgot another mnemonic, not just 12 and 70. There's another mnemonic that they were experiencing, and that is the full moon. So why does the Torah go out of its way to tell us the date? Doesn't care about dates but it's the second month, 15th day of the second month. Well, when was the first day? The only date that really matters to them is what happened the prior month. And if they, these people are, you know, people who just experienced the Exodus, they just had the experience of being told that there's a new moon. You've got to take out the lamb on the 10th day. Um, you got to wait around with this lamb for four days and then like have this kind of mass ceremony. Um, this was a major, major, major experience in their lives. As they watch the moon, that's what they're going to be thinking about. They are filled with memories of the night they left Egypt, which they may have been thinking about the positive sides on, right? But given this chain of memories, might they also think about their neighbors whose clothing and valuables they have with them, right? And who they had this meal and protected themselves with the blood that was stored in these pots. How else did they store it, right? They collected it in basins and pots. That's, oh, the next source basically shows you that's the word seer usually means. It's used in the, um, in, for karbanot in, in the in, in sacrifices. It's just one example just throughout Tanakh that way. So I want to suggest to you that their memories that they have of their experience in Egypt that were, that probably up to that frame of mind, they were thinking, oh my God, we're awesome, right? We, um, you know, Yosef was our great leader. We want to be like Yosef. Um, we're, you know, we're amazing. We can be like Yosef now. That was the height of our history. The second kind of peak was that night of the Exodus. And so they're leaving Egypt. And then, you know, maybe they came down again when the Egyptian army was charging. But wow, they must have been like, you know, at, you know, at this incredible height when God was on their side and victorious. But ever since then, the they've been dragged down memory lane with a big question mark of why are we deserving? And if they go down memory lane in that, thinking about it hard and thinking about it, really reviewing it, we have very good reasons not only to have survivor's guilt, but even to have a sense of perpetrator's guilt mixed in. In general, a very, very big question about why we deserve to be treated any differently from the Egyptians. That's the big question. And why is it that we didn't get, why in that first moment when we were distinguished from the Egyptians, why? It's a major, major theological question that they have, and I think appropriately, that we should always have. Why should we be, why are we special? Okay. Here's God's answer. And this is, I think, key to thinking about it. This is the narrative of leading into. So God's answer is the response to their panic. That's source 18. How are we doing on time? Ah, okay. I got the answer. I can, I can, uh, I thought I had a little more time than this, but I'll, I'll just uh, outline the list. This is fine. Here's the answer. God says, I'm going to be mamtir It's an amazing thing. So Yosef had his way of providing bread. I have my way of providing bread. I'm going to be... Yeah, so I, I think, Ozzy, you're right. I think they probably were not, they were not inclined to be um, thinking about how we mistreated the Egyptians. But I think that's the point of these few weeks is to take them down memory lane in a certain kind of way, is to review it. Other, if it weren't for that, I don't think we would, but I think it helps to do it, okay? So there's two really important aspects to this response. 
Okay. One is God is giving a free gift. We sort of said with, with Shabbat, and it's true here. He's going to be providing. So the point is, God is not just an Ishmael Chama. He's not just a destroyer, which is all their experience they had of God so far, is a God of the destroyer. God is also provider. And that Mamtir, right, goes back to the very first verses of the, the second creation story. That's Biterem Himtir. God is providing um, the, you know, from Mishamayim, right, the, um, the wherewithal for us to eat. That's where it comes from, it comes from God. And the second is this notion of God is providing a nisayon, a test, okay? And that's tough, yes. But, and this is, um, you can see this in, I'll skip over that source, but you can see this in um, this very nice chazal there from uh, Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai. But let me just go to the original on this that he's elaborating, which is from, this is the important point here, is now Moshe and Devarim again. So here Moshe is explaining how this works. And he's saying, um, this is about the commandments in general, but he's playing off the man, and the man, I would say man and Shabbat, but the man regime, regime of the man. He's saying it's for life. This is a big theme of his in, this is the where you get life from. It's for you to get to know, to understand, right? Um, and this sense of be, making you starve and actually tormenting you, right? And um, this regime, this tough regime, where you didn't know where your, where your next meal was coming from, your next day's bread was coming from, was there as a training program. So God's answer to the question of, um, do, are you deserving? Is basically, he's basically punting on the question and saying, I'm not interested in the past, right? other than maybe breed a vote, but that's not the emphasis here. I'm interested in the future. And I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a free gift. And also, I'm coming up with a way of both testing. And testing here is training. Any kind of test also implies that you're looking forward and that you've got a shot. Right? But it's a training regimen. Right? And so you have this again and again and again, this notion of, and you know, you experience deep in your hearts, right, that just as a you know, stern father um, trains their child, Right, Yisurim, right? So, like tough training, that's what God was doing here. Okay. If you look back, and we've got just two minutes left, that's the main message that that, um, that I wanted to get to is oh, let me, let me just emphasize one really important thing. So, what you'll see in the rest is also a little more play on, I think there's a bunch of Yosef references in here also. One of them you'll see is to do with the notion of, um, you know, uh, mouth. So there's a there's a mouth theme the most that almost like uh, Yosef is a mother bird is feeding Egypt and people through his mouth. Um, and you'll see here it's it's you know it's it's God's mouth. Over and that's more important. That's really where the source of food comes from, not man and uh, not humans, but God. <clears throat> um, and but the other, but the really most important thing I want I want to just leave leave you with is we should think about what. Um, there's so two contrasts, but um, one is thematic, which has to do with sevens, right? So Yosef was about basically fives over sevens. I can send you some more stuff on this, but basically was overcoming sevens. And sevens were a godly cycle that God revealed to, to Yosef about cycles of providing food and not providing food. And he was going to overcome it through the technological mechanism. That technological mechanism was storage. And storage sounds very mundane, but it's really, really key, right? We know about this from COVID, how important storage is, right? And it's, it's a way of not only sustaining life, but it's also a way of controlling time, transcending time. And so if you think about the regime of the Shabbat and the Man, it's a return to a divine beat that's sevens based that's based on provide like Moshe is saying here starving and providing food that God determines and basically saying oh and and shows you that, that you know who controls storage well you know you try to store it it doesn't work during the week store it the next day God basically is in control of that right that's the sense in which it's a tikkun right it's a it's basically you know, for fear, you might think, as Moshe says here, that you might think that you are the source of your bread. 
God, the benevolent king, is the source of your bread, is the key message. Going back to the, you know, how we started off um, this morning. Let me show you one last thing just to add to this. You can see some things, which is, I just want to just want to show you. Um, so the last few sources, you can see, um, number one, you go to, to now to Balodcha again, where this story comes up, you'll see that the hand of God now means something new. It means now the sustaining hand. God's sustaining hand is limitless, is what um, God, God says over here to Moshe, who is, maybe doubts it. Okay, so the Yad Hashem now is transformed through this process to mean a sustaining hand, not just a destroying hand. They learn that. Second, um, if you jump ahead here, this one, it's really cool. So I think the, the Song of the Sea, Shirat Ayam, is amazing for one, a, a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is it's filled with false prophecy. The word false prophecy makes us nervous, but wrong prophecy, right? Errors of commission and errors of omission. Errors of omission, it's amazing. Here they are seeing the future and they don't see Sinai. No mention of Sinai. No mention of Shabbat, which is coming in just in a few in a couple of weeks, right? It's amazing what's omitted and then what's committed. It's it's an image in particular. They talk about winning these wars, and they war, they talk about God winning the wars for them. But at the end of the very same parsha, the end of chapter seventeen, the war of Israel against Amalek. You have a war in which God is basically hidden, and they have to fight the war. And you could say, yeah, you know, God, Moses raises his hands are up. Oh, so then there's, then there's a hand theme again. Seven hands. You look through all those purple hands again. And it's a reversal. It's basically saying, not only do you not know who we're going to fight. Oh, by the way, they don't ever even fight Edom or Moab. Right? There's one we get right, which is about the rest is not. So there's, there's a lesson there about not being too much like Yosef in that respect as well. Getting too big for our britches that we think we know what God, you know, who God is, and maybe even, you know, are in control of God. I mean, here's the Miriam point. I think this is pretty cool, um, which is that we think of Miriam as just echoing, but notice there's no Ishmael Chama here. There's nothing about, there's no martial imagery. It's just short and concise. It echoes the first words, and the hand shows up, right, as a celebratory hand. I'm not sure, you know, it's on a drum. <laughs> it's making, uh, you know, it's violent, I guess, but in a different kind of way, right? It's a much more humble, I think, response uh, than in the Shira, right? And then, and then the main response. All right, so I'll just leave you with that. The uh, basic idea here, right, is number one. Um, here, I'll put, that, I'll put back quickly on this, since we're still here. Um, uh, okay. Takeaways for today. Um, oops, here we are. Okay, so God answer is number one, I'm not just a destroyer, I'm a provider. Number two, my laws are not so inscrutable, you can grasp them. Number three, I may be like, oh, and by the way, I think that's, that's a key part of those first sukkim um, that I mentioned. Right, so pay attention, right? You can actually get this. It seems like you can't get it, but you can get it, right? I think it's a precedent for what Moshe is emphasizing. I may seem like a tough parent, even worse than a parent, but it's all meant for you at, at your benefit. Um, Moshe elaborates on that. Um, and then this regime is meant to be a check on your Yosef-like hubris that can get you in trouble. Um, and I mentioned all those points uh, already. All right. So next, if, if uh, next, what we'll do is why is Shabbat a capital offense? That's a hard question. We think about it, and then uh, we'll get to oh, the next. The, if you want to look at it in advance, very short, right? There's um, oh, that's thirty-one. Oh yeah, um, that's these are the these are the texts that. Uh, tell you about, um, again, multiple times that uh, it's capital offense, uh, kare too, but, uh, but also capital, and then the story of the wood gatherer. All right. That does look like a quite a big, quite a, I guess, big and weighty topic for next week. Um, 
And if anyone wants to catch up either on the first two classes or this class, um, they are in, up on the audio library or on Visual Live. And source sheets will be posted to the website short soon after with the I guess, extensive material. And if anyone has questions, what email, is there an email address they can reach you at? You can always email me ewzucker at mit.edu. Um, All right. All right. That's good to know. And thank you everyone for joining uh, after our uh, post perm break. It's good to see everyone. And look forward to seeing you next week. All right. And if you're interested in things that come not in seven, but in five, there is a Drisha class coming up this Sunday that I'd like to highlight. Our annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture is coming up on the topic of Manishtana, the Mishnah's fifth question with Dr. Mm -hmm. Hanan Gafni. Um, again, this takes this takes this will take place this Sunday at 12 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And if this is something you're interested in, you can check out our class page, Drisha.org slash classrooms to sign up along with our other along with our other uh, spring semester classes. With that, have a good night, everyone.